0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word humane as this, being characterized by consideration for others or compassionate. Today we're joined by Nancy Lawson, who brings this very idea to bear on our gardens in her book The Humane Gardener, Nurturing a Backyard Habitat for Wildlife. Nancy is a writer, editor, and naturalist. She is also the founder of Humane Gardener, an outreach initiative to help people live in harmony with the animals in their backyards. She writes the Humane Backyard column for All Animals magazine, which is published by the Humane Society of the United States. Prior to being a freelance writer and consultant, she worked for 15 years as an editor on Humane Society Publications. She joins us today via Skype from her home and garden in Maryland. Welcome, Nancy. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your current work in the plant world, by which I mean, What does your home gardening practice look like and what does your garden-related professional work look like, Nancy?
1: My home garden practice looks sort of right now half feral (laughs) in the sense that um, I have a couple of acres that I partly cultivate and I partly um, let go to see what comes up. So I've got a lot of different Things going on that may not be discernible in some spots to, to certain eyes, but are really uh, rich with uh, habitat for wildlife. So, um, in my professional life, I uh, am a writer and an educator, so I do a lot of public speaking. Particularly, I guess you would describe the main theme of it is the importance of plants to animals, and then I also do a little bit of consulting with people about their existing habitats in their home landscapes and how to enhance them.
0: And when you described your home garden as being partially feral at this point, give us a little description of of where you garden and what that garden looks like and the different things you grow there.
1: We are in Central Maryland, and so we're in the Piedmont region, So a lot of what was here before, of course, was eastern deciduous forest. And this was mostly former tobacco farms from a long time ago turned into suburbs. And so what the plant life is here has been really a a discovery experience for many of us. And uh, a lot of the The new types of plants that are being grown, of course, are long-time natives that were sort of crowded out by suburbia. And so we've got a mixture in my yard of sassafras trees coming up around our patio, around the edges. We have a whole tree line that we were lucky to inherit from the previous owners there's pine trees along one edge there's uh, a woods in the back a strip of woods uh, in a natural area and then tulip poplars on the other side and it was all grass when we moved in Mm. and now I created in the very beginning I created a lot of annual type cottage gardens and a big vegetable garden and I still love those plants but in the early 2000s I started to just sort of almost by accident come across native plants and start to learn about their value and their beauty. So I try to plant mostly those now. And we've got our more manicured, I guess you would say spaces around our patio in the back, but I try to do as little disturbance as I can there too. So it's a sort of almost a fern garden uh, with native ground covers and there's varying sun and shade everywhere you go, so I'm always trying to plant for the future and figure out, um, we've got a lot of meadow plants that are listed as sun plants, but they're really more, it's so baking hot here in the summer, they're really more part shade, so it's always an experiment for us. And so the back uh, backyard. it used to be a yard and we let it all kind of come up uh, to see what would happen. In the first experiment, we got mostly Japanese stilt grass, which is very invasive here. Mm-hmm. And we mowed it, and then we tried again, and the next um, time we got all these beautiful native broomsudge grasses and purple top grasses. And what sedge tends to do is crowd out everything else for a while and so that's been really good for us to start establishing a native meadow and the funny thing is that I was going to actually buy a broom sedge the year that it was starting to come up and I ran out of money on my gift card that my friends had given me for the nursery and I came home and I saw a broom sedge in the backyard and I was <laughs> like isn't that something that I just saw at the nursery?" And um, And then I realized we had hundreds of them coming up. So I really advocate for people to kind of see what's in their seed bank already, even if it's just in a little space at a time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit in your own life and then we'll move forward to to what has set you on this journey Tell me a little bit about your earliest influences in the gardening world and the plant world. What were there people or places that kind of set you up to be predisposed to wanting to be a gardener to connect with plants?
1: Yes, um, two really defining moments for me uh, were both related to being with my dad and the first one I was about, just shy of, I was almost three years old, and we used to go camping a lot because my parents were from Oregon. And so to be able to see our grandparents, we would have to all hop into the station wagon and drive across the country. And um, so that was really, that was really incredible in terms of learning how vast the country is, the different terrain, just looking out the window on those drives was amazing. But the most, um, the earliest memory I have was camping close by at a place called Catoctin State Park in Western Maryland, and we were, my whole family and uh, uh, family friends of ours who'd gone camping with us went into the woods, and we were just on a little walk, and all of a sudden, an unexpected deluge started coming down, and, and. I was so little I could barely walk. I mean, I was probably waddling, you know, so everyone else ran ahead and except for my dad. And I remember all the thunder and being kind of scared. And then I looked up at him and I I just had this really vivid memory of him giddy. He was just delighted by this rainstorm. And and he took my hand and we would run under the trees. You know, they were just these really tall trees and a big canopy and. I felt really protected by that and really happy just running with my dad in the rain. And I think that just aligned me to trees in some way, too. And then another thing is that my dad is a plant pathologist, and he was an avid gardener. And we grew up in one of these suburbs that where you could get fined if you didn't you know keep your grass a certain height and all of that so <laughs> i don't know how he got away with it but he actually carved out most of our front lawn into gardens and he liked a lot of the the european plants and the manicured the south african plants and the annuals but he loved flowers and and he made a little woods in in our backyard it was in his blood because he was in oregon where he grew up He started growing plants when he was 10 years old, and his dad built him a greenhouse. They lived in Portland, and um, his dad built him a greenhouse in the backyard, and he grew tuberous begonias and he had a mentor a, a grower there and he became certified so there's an article in the Oregonian about how he was the youngest licensed nursery man in Oregon at the time <laughs> at the age of 11. That's great. So yeah yeah so I guess it
0: was
1: sort of and in his I, blood.
0: Yeah and that's such a that's such a lovely image of you looking to your dad for how to react in this situation and seeing delight at the tempest of the storm instead of fear or discomfort. And that is such a formative moment, that unspoken mentoring from the adults to the children of how we are either in or we are, we are outside of nature. And he clearly gave you this strong, strong signal that you are in nature. And um, that's that was really beautiful. So then fast forward to your life in Maryland as an adult. And I know some of this because of having read the book, The Humane Gardener. But I would love for you to share with listeners who may not have read the book, your sort of work and life process that led you to say, I'm going to stop caring for this lawn and let things start coming up and see what happens. I'm going to abandon that old European plant, cottage, garden, you know, ethos and try something else. Why Why did you do that and, and tell us about that journey?
1: I never liked lawns. And so that part of it, I, I always wanted to be able to take it over with flowers. <laughs> but at a certain point, I realized... I was, I was growing thousands of plants in my basement every spring and from seed and, and every year I was doing it again and every winter there wasn't much else in our garden and I had read about the mistakes beginning gardeners make and I had read I should plant structural plants and shrubs and trees and I had just been so focused on my love of flowers at first that I didn't do that as much and then I realized at some point there weren't really any animals in the winter Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there was nothing to sit on or or feed on but my my real uh, awakening I think was when i was working at the humane society of the u.s and i was collaborating with some biologists in the urban wildlife department on an article on goose populations and humane goose control and they were really advocating for some innovative methods as a way to avoid the 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 mass gassing that often occurs in communities that get tired of the geese pooping around their lakes and such. And they'll call in the government to do, to basically just kill them. And so one of the things was bring in border collies to chase them away. And another uh, was addling of the eggs, so oiling the eggs Mm. so that they don't hatch but one of the ideas uh, that had been working i think it was in Pennsylvania a native plant landscaping company had been planting buffers around the lakes of grasses and tall meadow plants and such and the geese don't like that because in the summer when they're nesting when they when the spring and then when they're molting they want a visible sightline to the water to escape from predators mm-hmm. easily when they can't fly as well, and so a native buffer vegetation keeps them from seeing that water, and they're not going to be as likely to congregate there. And so this was a situation where people were just mowing down all the plants, which then invited these animals en masse, which then created all this conflict, and and I realized we need to have humane landscaping, we need to have active solutions in the form of plants and that plants are so important to solving so many problems that people have with wildlife. They're not only important to welcoming wildlife like the butterflies and the birds and bees, but also to, to coexisting with the ones that people are upset about sometimes like the rabbits and the deer and the, and the larger plant-eating mammals that we may not appreciate as much.
0: And then I think as well, there was a moment that you describe in the book, uh, in, in addition to this, about your work at the Humane Society and the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina.
1: Yeah, I just felt, I felt sort of distanced from the garden after that. We had spent August of... I think it was 2005 well into 2006 trying to reunite people with their pets and it was before the era of really how the internet is now and it was really difficult to find people's pets and match them up and it was devastating mm-hmm. a lot of the time to talk to these folks and know that they'd lost everything that mattered to them And so I started to feel like my gardening efforts were maybe a little bit frivolous. And in retrospect, I think that was just depression, but
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, because gardening certainly isn't frivolous, but I felt like I was so focused on doing things exactly right in the garden. I mean, I was really rigid about, about my gardening back then. And I wanted everything to be perfect and I wanted everything to be neatly spaced. And I mean, I was probably incorrigible to my husband because, you know, we would try to garden together and be like, no, you can't do it that way. I read that you have to do it this way.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, somehow I just let all that go. And I just, I just sort of, when I would wander around the garden, it was getting messier and messier. And at some point I realized how much life was coming because of that mm-hmm. and how my sort of stepping back from pulling everything that didn't seem to belong or um, I guess, I guess at that point I probably took leaves away and stuff. I didn't realize how much that was actually inhibiting the life of the, the real life of the garden. And, and, you know, people talk about things like winter interest in the form of red berries or, or structural plants, which is all great, but I started to realize there's interest in having these incredible animals visiting. That's the real, that's when you really know you have a real depth to your garden.
0: And that, that aha moment is so painful and yet it's so important if we're going to like break through to a new relationship with our gardens that is you know, and, and it's, it's sort of a, a trendy word, but it's authentic. That is like really a relationship. It's not holding a glossy magazine in the garden and saying, look, it has to look like this. And, right. and she said or he said that I can't do it that way. So I'm going to pull that and I'm going to cut that and I'm going to put that in. And it's going to look just like this picture. Isn't that full of heart? And for you, it, it clearly came from these two really moving human uh, awake, awakenings. Uh, of this the way that I garden, that this community gardens around this lake is causing the conflict that is leading to sadness for animals that I love. I'm working for the Humane Society and I am not treating my animals well. This is a disconnect I have to do something about. Following this is so, it's really powerful. I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place, Today we're speaking with Nancy Lawson, gardener and writer living and gardening humanely in her partially feral garden in the Piedmont region of Maryland. There she welcomes the sassafras saplings, broom sedge grasses, ferns, and wildflowers who tentatively return to her garden each year. We'll be back after a break to hear more about her journey from being a gardener who tried to color inside the lines with determination to a gardener who stopped to enjoy the life, plant and animal, that showed up once she let it. Hey, it's Jennifer. Here's one of the things that struck me about this conversation with Nancy Lawson. Her early description of being a little waddling toddler with her father in the downpour of rain. Of looking up to see her father delighted by the event and comfortable in that moment and place. This really makes me think about how messages are transmitted to us without words and how we transmit important messages without words to others, to our childrens, to our peers, to our neighbors. This has me thinking about how and where I might have transmitted a message of fear when, had I thought about it, I would have liked to transmit a message of awe and wonder and open-heartedness. Whether in response to heavy rain, spiders, snakes, poison oak or poison ivy, whatever it might be, how do we open our eyes and minds in the garden and on the trail to transmit wonder and delight? Sometimes, of course, healthy respect, but anything other than fear. This is something to consider, and I'm sure I won't get it right all the time. Like the next time I encounter a rattlesnake on the trail and my legs feel wobbly. But we can always keep learning and modeling that even in the presence of fear, we have a willingness to expand, which is part of what cultivating place is all about, expansion. How do you like Cultivating Place? If you like it or if you've been moved or expanded by it yourself in some way, do me a favor, will you? Share it. Share it far and wide. Share it with anyone you think might be equally interested in conversations of this kind about these things we love. And if that's easy enough, then consider giving the program a review on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or NPR One anywhere you get your podcasts. My greatest hope with this program is to expand the way we think and talk about our beloved gardens and our connection to the natural world from this lens. And the more people sharing in this journey, the merrier. Thank you in advance for this help. It might seem small to you, but it makes an enormous difference to the reach of the program and to me. Now back to our conversation with Nancy Lawson, the humane gardener. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Nancy Lawson, author of The Humane Gardener, Nurturing a Backyard Habitat for Wildlife. Nancy traveled the width and breadth of the U.S. to document some shining examples of humane gardeners and their practices for her book and her outreach initiative. Nancy is speaking with us today from her garden in Maryland. Welcome back. So then it leads you on this greater journey of creating this habitat garden for yourself. It also leads you to writing this book. Talk about that process of taking what is a personal experience and then deciding you need to take this show on the road because it's that important to you?
1: Well, I initially was interested in writing a book in the early 2000s, just as a passing comments that I would make to my friends and my husband and such, because I felt like there wasn't anything out there yet that quite talked about native plants in Maryland in, in the way that I, I thought would be accessible to just the average gardener or homeowner. And I was busy at work. I didn't really have time and kind of dropped that idea. And then I ended up writing a column called Humane Backyard for our magazine where when I was still working. I still write it now. I don't work there anymore. But I still write this column for All Animals Magazine, which is the membership magazine of the Humane Society. And in 2013, I think it was, uh, the Princeton Architectural Press uh, editorial director just happened to see it and sent an email to the HSUS saying, we're trying to get in touch with Nancy Lawson to see if she would be interested in writing a book. So it was like <laughs> <laughs> really uh, amazing day, you know, because um, it, it sort of fell in my lap. But at the same time, I had been thinking for years about just this idea that I was working in the animal welfare movement, and there were incredible things going on for animals in all sectors of society, practically, but when it came to wildlife, a lot of the real focused work was on large-scale cruelties that you could see, and on animals in large-scale landscapes. and people who really care about animals a lot weren't realizing that we can help them right outside our door and that often we're hurting them and so I felt like there's this huge huge audience out there and a lot of people who say oh I'm not a gardener and I mean I can't tell you how many people in that realm tell me I'm a brown thumb and you know and and I just it makes me so sad because nobody's a brown thumb right um Mm -mm. and and it it it's such a missed opportunity and so you know since then I've had friends who who they'll they'll plant one thing or they'll do something that I recommend like leave the leaves or something and then they'll tell me oh my gosh this animal came can you help me plant more and I couldn't believe. Look what I saw. I saw this hummingbird moth, or or what have you, and they get really, really excited mm-hmm. um, by that connection. And so, so I, I that was that was one reason. The other the other thing that I was trying to address with the book was that there is there has been this growing movement of realization that wildlife need native plants, and it's really exciting, and it's it's just keeps building and building. Um, but there's still there's still this notion that some animals are good and some animals are bad. And, and some are, you know, some are taken for granted. Some are so prolific that we don't, we don't need to worry about them. And, And we know from history that that is, is a dangerous attitude to take because we shouldn't be taking anybody for granted. And, we may lose them, too. They may seem abundant now. But deer have chronic wasting disease now and things like that. So I was trying to get at both of those sides, the plant people, the animal people, who in general care a lot but maybe don't see that whole
0: picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about the book, so I would like you to talk about the structure, is that it isn't just one voice, one perspective, one passionate rhetoric. It, it isn't one person's passionate rhetoric, but rather it's this gathering of voices and examples from across the country on the different ways people are approaching it and why they're doing it and and how it is being manifested in their regions and with their personalities. Talk about that process of, of how you found the people that you interviewed and then highlighted and the sort of organization of the book?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was really interested in trying to show a different geographic range to show that, that these concepts are universal and you can do them anywhere, and then also a different range of resources and budgets so people don't think you have to be wealthy or hire landscapers to do this. And and then, but then my primary um, overarching goal was to make sure that everyone that I profiled was as humane as possible. And so it was difficult to find people that fit all of those things. So the book ended up being people in six different regions. And I have someone in Oregon, Colorado, Florida, Canada, California, and Illinois. And so it it's just a sampling of the country, but it's meant to give a different idea of the different plants and different animals. And when I looked for people, it was sometimes disappointing to find somebody who was really compassionate toward toward most creatures and I would want to get in touch with them to see if I could profile them but then I'd find some post from them about how much they hate squirrels or something like that <laughs> and it's not that I think everybody has to be like me or everybody has to be perfect in some way we all have our fears and we all have our challenges with this but I I really wanted to have people represent as humane and compassionate of you as possible in Mm -hmm. this book and i know there are a lot of people out there they're not necessarily the ones that are always on facebook or um, writing books or um, online blogging and such so a lot more people since i wrote this book i've connected with And learn from and get so many new relationships that way but in in the beginning just trying to find people when I wasn't even sure exactly how this book was gonna shake out was was a challenge
0: I want to plumb that just a little bit deeper so would I have been eliminated because I squish my aphids is that bad (laughs) no um, I don't squish I them mean, well, all. i I leave a lot for the birds, but I squish them when I can find them, Nancy.
1: I would not have I, so i don't I don't squish the aphids anymore, but I would not have I also would not have eliminated okay. you for squishing the
0: aphids. And it is so funny because we are all on this journey of evolving. And so what used to bother me a great deal doesn't bother me anymore. I mean, it's just like, you know, and and I'm not going to say that about every single thing because I'm, I'm still working on how to coexist kindly with my gophers. But right. that is that is still a work in progress i will I will admit without question. and it isn't that there's one destination it, but to even have the conversation about the fact that I might want to try and coexist more kindly with my gophers <laughs> that, that's a step in the right direction
1: absolutely yeah. yeah
0: so tell us give us just a little profile of the, each of the ones you did choose, and you can summarize it as, as briefly as, as you'd like, because they are interesting. And one of the fun things for me was how many of them, or, you know, close to them, I have interviewed for the program over the past couple of years. So that was fun. Oh, uh,
1: yeah. The California, the first chapter is a, a profile of a California gardener who actually had tried to hire landscaping companies to plant California native plants. And what he ended up with was uh, Australian plants, Mm -hmm. um, even from a, a company that said they were planting natives, which happens a lot. Yes. And so he decided that he eventually decided he needed to do this all on his own and just created this breathtaking landscape that is a combination of planting and letting Things come up in the seed bank. Yeah. And it's pretty wild and he's learned to coexist with um with the little burrowing mammals that they bring the owls and right. and he created Calscape.
0: Yeah. Um, the database. So Dennis Mudd Trans- Dennis Mudd was one of our guests last year, and we went all through his garden at that time and how to use Calscape. And it really is an inspirational mindset and garden. So Yes.
1: Yes. And and the second chapter is on Lorette Setters in Florida, and she created an, uh, a, a garden largely by letting things come up, and she used to plant things from Home Depot and stuff like that in her first Florida garden, and and then she moved to this place with a pond, and she has just a very wild beautiful space where she discovers new things every day and she's really kind of a amateur entomologist now and then another person is charlotte edelman in illinois and she was really interesting because she has worked on both her own yard and then community habitats at local parks she plants at fire stations, little prairie fragments. And wherever anyone will let her add plants and lobby for adding plants, she does so. And so she has a beautiful two-acre um, prairie garden in a park in Wilmette, Illinois, where she lives. And then the, the fourth one is in Canada, in Ontario, and she lives in a rapidly developing community, And is also an amateur wildlife rehabber. She works with professionals, and she's constantly coming across animals in distress and in need of help. And has created a wildlife garden in her little small backyard. And it was important to me to highlight her because I wanted to show what you can do when you face these backyard hazards that animals are, are always getting stuck in garden netting and yeah. And fencing and, and these things that are pretty easy to prevent and that people just don't know about. And then the fifth person was Tammy Hartung in Colorado. And I just loved talking with her. She's written some books. Um, and one was very unique, and I actually found her through my local bookstore, because um, I think I'd seen her herb books before, but didn't realize that she'd written The Wildlife-Friendly Vegetable Gardener, which I gave to my friend a few Christmases ago, and then when I was looking for people to profile, I thought, I have got to talk to her, (laughs) Um, because she grows her own vegetables for her family, and then she also Sells a lot of plants for market. She grows seed for a flower seed company. And yet she has a herd of 30 deer wandering through her property. She has all kinds of wildlife there that she coexists with. And um, so she's pretty unique. And then the sixth chapter was on Eileen Stark in Portland, Oregon. And I just felt this need to kind of profile back to my roots where my family is from somebody there and she lives in an urban lot and it was really not planted at all when she moved there and she has some beautiful things going on now she's always posting on her blog and on Facebook she wrote a book called Real Gardens Grow Natives and in spite of the small space she's just filled it with native plants and then Hummingbirds come and nest there, and she does a lot with sculptural, using wood as sculptural assets. So I profiled her in a chapter called Encourage Life in the Decay, Mm -hmm. because she's got stumps with moss growing over them and brush piles and all sorts of places for animals to take shelter and find insects for food and things
0: like that. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. After being a fairly rigid suburban home gardener and working for the Humane Society of America for several years, Nancy Lawson, author of The Humane Gardener, began to see a pattern of discrepancy between the ethos of the Humane Society and the way in which she gardened based on mainstream garden culture and communication earlier in her gardening life. She is pleased that in the last 15 years or so, there are healthy signs all across the gardening world of an awakening to how much more our gardens can do, humanely, for us and for the other living things we would like to feel welcome and cared for within these gardens of ours. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. It's Jennifer again. Another thing I've been thinking about in this conversation with Nancy is how to reframe my thinking on where there might be conflicts in my garden or natural areas that I don't even recognize as conflicts, but if I saw them for what they were, instead of, that's just the way it is, resignation, I will never creatively think my way out of it. I think of the weeds in the garden and the creatures in my garden, and I think about the inevitable life in the chaos. I love that, and we all know it's true. Let the lettuce bolt and go to seed, and you see so much more than you might have otherwise. Right now, in my tiny front garden, there is a salvia fruticosa that was originally in a pot three summers ago now, and has liberally seated herself about and become something of an impromptu hedge, which is on the list of things to take control of so that the chair I sit in there can actually be sat in. But the thing is, this little accidental hedge is now in bloom, and every afternoon while I'm working at my desk, I'm routinely distracted by bumblebees and hummingbirds darting about at the pale lavender tubular blooms, and they bring me such happiness. So, as Nancy celebrates in her work, it is so often where we relinquish that dreaded and delusional word, control, that life gets really interesting. What chaos has brought more life to your garden? I'd love to read about it or see it, If something comes to mind for you, send me a comment through the contact page at cultivatingplace.com. If you don't already subscribe to my monthly newsletter, sign up while you're at the website. It's a great way for me to stay in touch with you. You can also always leave a comment on this episode's post on Instagram or Facebook. I'm on Instagram daily and Facebook weekly. Join me there. Say hi. I'd love to connect and share your views too. Okay, now back to Nancy Lawson and her humane, lovely garden. This is Cultivating Place Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Nancy Lawson, author of The Humane Gardener Nurturing a Backyard Habitat for Wildlife, and founder of the Humane Gardener an outreach initiative to help people live in harmony with all of the living creatures including human, in their gardens large or small, front side or back welcome One of the chapters that I found so compelling was was chapter 4 on the safety zones and some of the ways that we can work to not set, Inadvertent death traps for the animals in our gardens. And I remember this from having a house at one point in my life that had a swimming pool. And the number of creatures who died in the swimming pool before I figured out some of the ways to help get them out safely was just heartbreaking. And it was one of those steps in my evolutionary process where I thought, this can't, this is not, this is not working for me or them. We have to figure something out.
1: Absolutely, and actually, uh, I confess that I have a swimming pool, and I wrote something on my website last year about how to make them safer and ways to help when something does happen, but it it, it, it is a conflict for me. It was here when we moved in. We enjoy it a lot. My husband grew up with a swimming pool, but it's certainly very dangerous to... A lot of animals, if mm-hmm. you're not careful. And there's a lot you can do with frog logs and critter skimmers and floating bee balls now that you can put in there. But what did you
0: do? Well, I, I did one of the things that you mentioned in the book, which is the little floating exit ramp. So, and it, it just bobbed with the level of the pool at one end. The edge of it that was in the water was. Set So that the profile was right underneath the water, because when you're stuck, you swim all the way around the pool trying to find an exit for the most part. And so these we and then we had two of them. And those two exits helped things like snakes and frogs and not all of the flying insects, but all of the um, more sort of reptile or mammal kinds of animals. So
1: yeah, because they just need that that angle to, to climb out.
0: Exactly. Yeah. The book as a whole is really a beautiful testament to different people at different points in this journey, with different resources and and different plant palettes and and wildlife communities. When you are now sort of taking this work forward in your own life and you go on consultations to people's homes, first of all, what does to walk us through a, one of your one of your consultations and and how you start and what you look for because in some cases I think we could walk out into our gardens and be completely overwhelmed with you know trying to keep all these different things in mind.
1: True yeah so first of all I try to tell people to just start small and start with a couple of things that they can do so that they don't feel that way um because you can do just a little bit and start to see it transform practically overnight sometimes um but when i f- visit with people first i want to get to know what are their cultivation practices and so my last one that i did a couple of weeks ago i i went to see somebody who's quite a veteran in the animal welfare field did a, did a scientific journal journals, um, edited them, founded them, edited them. And, um, so very, very interested in being humane and, and helping animals. And he and his wife were just floored by the fact that, um, you shouldn't use a leaf blower or that you should leave the leaves. And the people have this sense of relief, oftentimes mm-hmm. when you tell them these things. And they didn't know about the fact that mulch can inhibit ground nesting bees from finding a place to nest, mm-hmm. and that most of our native bees are ground nesters. And so these, these things that I asked to get at, how they view landscaping in general, how, how if they're coming from a traditional point of view, if they've heard of any of these things yet. And then we go to what exactly plants do they have right now currently in their habitat and which ones are the most helpful. Mm-hmm. And do they have a middle shrub layer? Do, most places just have trees and grass here. There's, there's, there's not really these shrubs where a lot of birds like to nest and animals can take cover and it, you know the dense hedgerow type of stuff is gone. And so I look for that, and what invasives do they have that they might need to address in some way, and how can we plant for that and plan for that? So it's it's sort of about interviewing them first Mm -hmm. to see, and walking around to see what's available for animals, what isn't, and what could be done quickly. You know, leaving the leaves, you can just start right away, and it's
0: really no impact for your time or energy. Right. And I agree with you that sometimes it's just people – People have heard so many conflicting things over their lifetimes about what is good, what is bad, how to do it, how not to do it, why, that sometimes they just need that permission slip of, yeah, you don't have to take your leaves. And yeah, it's actually completely non-beneficial to use a a leaf blower pretty much in any circumstance. These aren't removing leaves, especially with a leaf blower, is no source of great joy for anyone. So to have it removed from your life is, it's a win-win, I think.
1: Absolutely. And it's, it's great because when you start to, when, when I give talks and you start to get some of these questions, like last week, somebody asked me, well, I had a couple of snakes and I, I humanely mo- remove them to somewhere else. And should I really be doing that? And she wanted me to say no. And of course I said, no, snakes are great. You know, snakes are really good to have in your habitat. And, but for some reason she had this, This inherent thought that she she can't have them around her family. Right. And we don't have we might have one poisonous snake in Maryland and it's not likely you're going to see that kind in your garden anyway. So. Right. People just have preconceived notions.
0: Right. And that, yeah, that that's a tough one. I, I live in rattlesnake country, and we get rattlesnakes in the garden. And you do have to really talk down your own fear and then figure yeah. out, because you, you don't want them around your animals or your pets, but you also don't want to kill them. They're fantastic citizens in this ecosystem we live in, but they do present a conflict. And so figuring out how to... Get them safely removed from a no longer appropriate location is is worth making the effort to do. I think.
1: Yeah, and and Dennis Mudd is a good example for yeah. that because he had he had his dogs trained and yeah. in being scared of rattlesnakes.
0: <laughs> right, having I think these models of other people and how they've approached some of these um, these dilemmas is is helpful because there isn't just one way, and we don't, you know, we I don't want to get into a big judgment scenario no. because the whole point is to increase this joy in this activity that adds to our life in all ways. Right. When you when you look back, and this is the the, the final question I'd like to end with, and you see some of the great progress your own home garden has made in welcoming life more fully into it. Why and how would you articulate the importance of that to our general cultural mindset at large?
1: I think that our our gardens are increasingly going to be one of the last Refuges in many of our communities for wildlife because the development isn't slowing down the human population is ever increasing and learning to coexist with other animals around us not only is going to be our own salvation because we need the balance of life for biodiversity for pollination so many of these generalist species keep the balance of insects like little skunks and opossums and other turtles and, and such. We need all of these creatures. We are going to be a very lonely species, and we already are in a lot of ways. If we don't find ways to connect with those around us, I mean, there's an absolute just joy in the discovery of who is making a life out there in in even the smallest of home landscapes, it can be a home for so many other creatures beyond just us. And while that might scare some people initially, I think it just takes a few of these sightings of these creatures you've never seen before and a little bit of understanding about how they go about their lives for us to appreciate you know, appreciate that we're not the only species on earth and we're just far from the most important one. We're all important here. So one example that I wanted to just mention about the joy of discovery in your garden and the cycle of life types of situations that you come upon is When I went outside this summer during the eclipse, I wanted to see if I could see anything. And on my way out there, I, I saw something much more breathtaking than what we could see in the sky from where I am in Maryland, which was this wasp that had bright, bright blue wings and a bright orange body. And I watched her open and close her wings. And so when she closed up, she looked like the night sky. And when she opened, she looked like the sun. Her colors were that brilliant, mm-hmm. and so it was. It was like she, I named her the Eclipse Wasp, <laughs> and I later found out she's her scientific name is Trogus penator. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but she is a parasitoid wasp who lays her eggs in the caterpillars of Eastern Tiger Swallowtail butterflies, which are really common here and really beautiful. And while that might seem upsetting to some people who love butterflies, to me, it showed that we have so many butterflies here now that we can also support this beautiful wasp in her life cycle. And I think it's just about constantly learning and enrich it enriches your own life too. Mm
0: hmm. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Nancy. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. You too. Thank you so much. Nancy Lawson is the author of The Humane Gardener, Nurturing a Backyard Habitat for Wildlife, published by Princeton Architectural Press in 2017. Nancy is also an editor, naturalist, and founder of Humane Gardener, an outreach initiative to help people live in harmony with the animals, great and small, in their backyards. She writes the Humane Backyard column for All Animals magazine, published by the Humane Society of the United States. She joined us today via Skype from her home and garden in Maryland, After we finished speaking, Nancy emailed me to say, quote, just now I went out and found volunteer native dog tooth violets popping up in some leftover lawn that I'm still trying to get rid of, which is also why I say my garden is half feral. We have all this old turf. But there are so many native plants coming into every spot of it that I often just end up painstakingly pulling the grass out around the little plants. In some places, the natives are so tough, they outcompete the grass. But in other places, I have to help them along. So it can be funny looking. But in my mind, I can see where it's going. I hate to disturb anything also, which of course is a problem for a gardener, but once When I was about to remove some turf that had invaded a front bed, I realized there were baby snakes in there. So the turf stayed for that season. Events like finding the baby snakes really emphasizes to me the importance of challenging our own assumptions and questioning fear-based marketing about both animals and plants." End quote. I could not agree with you more, Nancy. Fear-based decision-making so rarely gets us where we want to go, especially perhaps in the garden. Joy and wonder-based gardening, on the other hand, really just might. Consider the eclipse wasp and its radiance. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by California Public Broadcasting and you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast as well as to read more about the humane gardener and see lots of photos of Nancy's garden and photos from her book, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.
1: digging digging, digging, digging sous
0: Um